So many of us right now are feeling anxious, not just because of what's going on in the United States, but also because what we've seen in our relationships. I'll be back in just a moment to talk about it. This is Nero Feliciano, and welcome to the All Things Life podcast. I'm a wife, a mom of four, and a cognitive psychotherapist. And I'm really excited to share these conversations and interviews with you that will hopefully help you live a healthier, fuller, and more peaceful life. Happy Sunday, everyone. And if you're listening to this, the Sunday it drops after Election Day, you know that we have a president of our country finally after what seemed like an eternity, causing so many people to have anxiety on both sides. We have an answer and hopefully we can move on. So I know there are many of us who are rejoicing right now. There are many of us who are feeling like we can breathe again, who we can call ourselves Americans and be proud. And there on the other side, many who are very fearful, many who are disappointed and really had hoped for a different outcome. And what I can say to those people is that God is sovereign and he has this. And I've said this before, God is good at being God and his plans for all of us and his plans for our nation keep going. I know many of you around the world have watched our country and are still watching because there is still some uncertainty. We don't really know what's going to happen from here. Our current president has not conceded this race as of yet. And we are all anticipating that this is going to be a bit of a process. And in the midst of all of that, so many of us have experienced strain and stress and fractures in our relationship, in our bodies. We have seen division like we've never seen it before in this country, and especially in our churches. And that's what I'm here to talk about tonight. Why has there been such division in our church this particular election, and what can we do about it to heal? It is so important that we continue our conversations, but in the right way. And my dear friend of 30 years, Amy Julia Becker, who is an award-winning author of several books. The last one was White Picket Fences. She was on my podcast recently to talk about it, is joining me today to talk about this issue. How do we get past this? How do we get past the hurt? How do we move to healing? How do we bridge the gaps that have formed, not only in this election, but over the last four years? Yesterday, a friend of mine called me and he had some concerns about something I'd posted on Instagram and I'd posted this thing at four in the morning, which was my big takeaway from, from this whole conversation I had with him, because I had read most of it, except for the last paragraph, which was very, very detrimental to people who voted differently than I did. Now, unfortunately, I didn't really catch that fourth paragraph um, at four in the morning. And he called me because he said, you know, this didn't sound like you. This, this had a very different tone than what I've always known you to have. And I'm calling to have this conversation with you. And, and it was very tense at the beginning because he and I both voted differently. And I was thinking maybe that's what his criticism was of me. But really, we had just a great conversation. And I got to understand him better. I think he got to understand where I was coming from as well. And our friendship is strong. So I do believe this can happen, but it's going to take some work and persistence. And I know not all of us are ready to jump into that right now, but as a church, we are instructed to be unified. We are one body. We are to rejoice when people are rejoicing. And when others are suffering, we are to feel that as well. So I'm not going to say any more because this is a super long podcast. And I would say, take it in in sections because my friend Amy Julia just talks about so many important things that I want you to get all of it. Just so you know, we do talk about how to heal from this, but it comes towards the end of the conversation. So here is my chat with my friend and author, Amy Julia Becker. Well, Amy Julia, once again, we could have just recorded the whole conversation we had and had a podcast episode, but you know, you're my go-to person. Thank you for making the time to have this very important conversation. 
And, Ugh. you know, I, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. And I, for one, as a person of color, as somebody who loves Jesus, have been so conflicted in this election with my other ch- members of my church family. It has mm. been incredibly divisive. So can you say a little bit about that? What has it been about this time around that I feel like has really, in, in many ways, ripped us apart and been incredibly heavy for people of color? Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to have this conversation. Anytime. Um, it is, yeah, well, and it's also just helpful for me because I, too, have been really wrestling through this whole election cycle to try to understand why people within the church are seeing things so differently. It is one thing to say within our more secular culture or within different religious communities, we see things differently. Sure we do. Why is that the case within the church itself? That has been on my heart and on my mind definitely with the, you know, the past year, but even going back, I mean, I just want to rewind for a minute to four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember on the day after president Trump was surprisingly elected because mm-hmm. everyone, I mean, was surprised at that point in time, finding out that 80% of white evangelicals had voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised by that. I didn't recognize that level of support from within the evangelical community, which is where I certainly grew up in faith, although I had experience in mainline churches as well. And I remember the day after having friends of mine who were on the more like progressive Christian side saying things about the rednecks who had voted for Trump Mm. and thinking, gosh, wait a second. I know people who you're talking about and the disdain that you have in your voice and the lack of love or curiosity or compassion. Like I just, it was like, wait, what? And then on the flip side of that, I remember talking to a woman who was a white evangelical who had voted for president Trump, um, who, was saying, like, I know he can be morally distasteful, but at least we don't have the progressives in charge. And again, just this Mm. sense of kind of sweeping all those other people out the door because they've got nothing of value. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that frames this same moment where it's like, are we going to listen to one another? And what does that mean to do that? And especially for my friends who are people of color who have been I feel like wounded, um, I mean, obviously from their whole history in the United States, but wounded by this past four years of this president and the way this election has gone, even if it looks like Biden is going to end up winning. What does healing look like Mm. within the church among people who see this really differently? There, I have a lot of questions around the role of race and racism and the ways in which we can learn how to talk with each other and not past each other Mm. on those topics. That is such a good way to put it, talk with each other. And I think what prevents us from doing that this time around is because we're so emotionally activated by these issues, right? When, When we're talking about racism in the past, and again, I don't feel like this is a Democrat Republican issue. Because, you know, our, as a person of color, like I have voted both sides at different mm-hmm. times. You know, and I have other friends of color who've said the same things. It is the things that have happened that have really been abusive and emotionally triggering to people of color. And that's that's one aspect. To mm-hmm. women, I, I have gotten so many clients and several therapists who I work with have been talking in the last few days how many women have been triggered by some of the narcissistic qualities that resemble other abusers, traumatizers in their life. I mean, we're talking about not an opinion, not name calling, clinical information Mm -hmm. that we've been talking about. It it's so emotional that it is difficult to hear another perspective when your lived experience is it has been what it has been, you know? So I Back to your point, I know many intelligent people, both in 2016 and now, that voted for Trump. They're intelligent. Right. They're smart. I don't think they're rednecks. You know, whatever. You know, whatever that 
is really, um, <laughs> you know, I don't think of them that way, but we see things differently. We have not been able to hear each other and understand each other and it's complex. So can you just speak a little bit more about, about that? So I listened to uh, Chris Hayes talking. He's a, you know, MSNBC liberal um, commentator. And one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting, he's like, this should not sound to me as surprising as it does. But one of the things we've seen in this election is that lots of Americans are conservatives. (laughs) And he was kind of joking, but he also wasn't in the sense that there are a lot of people who have a set of values that they would call conservative. Mm -hmm. And they actually think of that as not completely separate from who the president is, because obviously the president is representing a party that is meant to also be representing these values and how they're going to be enacted in terms of policies. But I do think whether it comes to issues like abortion or gun control or education or who's in charge of all sorts of things, is it the federal government or is it the local government? Like there are these bigger picture issues Mm -hmm. that people traditionally have really disagreed about and that has what has led to a more you know uh kind of traditional liberal perspective or a traditional conservative perspective and i think there's actually tremendous value in both of those perspectives and especially in um a system of government where both of those perspectives have to work together to legislate like mm-hmm. i think that ultimately is the ideal is that you have people who are more progressive and more conservative who are having to figure things out for the people together mm-hmm. and that was and the other thing that chris hayes said that was helpful for me is he was just like you know certainly there was no huge increase in people of color voting for President Trump, but there was actually an increase in 2020 mm-hmm. in terms of both the black vote and the, um, you know, people. Yes. Depending mm-hmm. on how you want to think about all right, that. Right. And that has to do again with two things, like with economics in terms of recognizing that at least before COVID, the wages were rising and there was a sense of like a healthy economy that was affecting lots of people as well as some of those more conservative values when it comes to family and uh, family choices and all of those things. And so I was, it was good for me just to be reminded that I tend to see, I have seen a lot of these past two elections through the lens of both racism and sexism. And I don't think, I think those are really important. And I think the character of whoever is in office is really important. And I think that the ways in which policies get enacted are, is really important as well. Mm -hmm. But I, and I don't, I get twisted up inside myself in trying to think about, okay, two things. First, what does it mean for me to love people who disagree with me? Mm -hmm. Like actually love, not just listen to, not just tolerate, but like actively love. What does it mean to learn from people who disagree with me and be open to their perspectives? And then on the flip side of that, what does it mean for me to say like racism is wrong and I'm not Mm going to be a part of that? I just like categorically, I am for, I'm on the side of justice, you know? So there's this kind of warring I want to understand I want to learn I want to be curious and compassionate and then this other piece of me that's like no no that's just wrong stop done (laughs) I don't I don't know how to work that all out it it and that's what makes it so complex so so when we we woke up after one of the days I mean how many days have there been now that we're counting (laughs) down I can't even keep track and everybody felt a little heavy and disheartened and I posted a video on Instagram uh, about this and I know I'm sure upset certain people Mm. But it was this feeling like, and, I, and I'm speaking for people of color, other oppressed people, that this was a really big issue for us and people just don't care as much. Mm. It's, it's not a deal breaker right. for them. Our lives, our rights, the, li- the rights of our children and the way that we're treated is not a deal breaker for people. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it's not important to other Christians, because it is. I know a lot of Christians who voted for Trump where they are anti-racist or they 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 don't they don't want to be racist. I'll put it that way. Right. I think there's different definitions sometimes. And but they voted for Trump because abortion is that emotionally triggering triggering issue for them. That is a right or wrong issue. Well, it in my opinion, okay, 
we're talking about different things that are very clear in the Bible, right? So the one that's a deal breaker for me is racism. It affects Mm -hmm. my family. It affects people. We've heard that rhetoric from our leader. And what I keep hearing from a lot of Christians is we're voting for the party, not the policy or not the Mm -hmm. person. We're voting for the party, not the personality. And my feeling is if that person is continually espousing things that are oppressing people, that's a problem. You know, if he's giving license to other people doing and saying things, which we have seen, that is a problem and creating disunity. If he doesn't listen to other people and goes ahead and does what he wants, that is a problem. You know, but other Christians who I don't question their faith in Jesus, I question the lens where I acknowledge the lens in which we see things is very different. Yeah. I mean, so I have a couple different responses here. Like one is I do think that historically in the West, Christianity got conflated with whiteness Mm. in order to actually allow the transatlantic slave trade to uh, be something that white European Christians could live with. Um, I mean, that happened literally because it was, you were not allowed to enslave fellow Christians. You could only enslave people who were from a different religion. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, there was just this layering of Christianity and whiteness. I mean, there wasn't even a concept of whiteness until that time, but when whiteness was created, it was layered with Christianity. And I think we are still very much in the process of trying to disentangle those two. And because there's, there's such a worldview. There's a Western worldview that comes with it. And, and part it. of that, I mean, that has to do with two things. Well, the way I see it uh, playing out is in, in the political realm is in two ways. One is this sense of individual responsibility as opposed to collective and systemic problems. Mm -hmm. I do think we are called to be individually responsible. And I think that is very biblical. Mm -hmm. I also think the Bible is very concerned with systems of injustice Mm -hmm. and understanding ourselves as a part of a collective whole where we are called not just to take care of ourselves, but to love one another in a more comprehensive way. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one way that it's played out. And then I also think there's a one of the polls I saw along the way of this election was that evangel- white evangelicals are, I think, the largest demographic group to say that they have strong, positive associations or affection for people of color. Mm. And that speaks to this idea of, like, I'm not a racist. Like, right. I right. truly, like, I in my heart, feel positively towards black people or towards brown people or whatever. And, you know, we can parse that out in terms of like, do you actually have friendships that cross those lines and whatever, but it's not a, in general, and, you know, white nationalists aside, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. But like when we're talking about your kind of Joe Schmo, like evangelical Christians sitting in the pew, they do not harbor deep animosity, conscious animosity towards black people. And Mm -hmm. that is, I think a, a sincere sense of like, I'm not a racist. And mm-hmm. and of course I'm not. My faith would tell me that would be wrong. You know, even right. like, right. but how that gets played out is very different, I think, within the white uh, evangelical church and within the more progressive mainline churches and within uh, the church of, you know, people of color, multi-ethnic churches, yes. the black church, whatever mm-hmm. you want to, you know, however you want to divide those things. Because those churches have some of the same conservative views, right? So they have, whether you're a black church, whether you're a multiracial church, they have some of the same conservative views. So if you take, yeah, like, I mean, I think two issues that come up, you brought up abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are many Christians on both sides of the aisle who are really concerned about abortion. And honestly, I think that the Democrats have uh, in removing the aspect of their platform that said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, Mm. I think they really lost an opportunity to say, yes, abortion is a moral issue, and it's an ethical issue for our entire society. And 
having women who cannot support their children and who find themselves in desperate situations or who are needing to make a decision about the health of their own bodies or their own babies is really complicated. And we don't want the government to be the one who's making those decisions. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I think there are so, so many of my like progressive friends, even ones who aren't even Christians would agree that this is an ethical issue and we need to have a place for that. So that sense of like the Democrats not providing a space for people who are pro-life uh, or who at least see the, the nuance moral, within ethical, abortion. Yep, piece of it, right? I, because there are many Democrats, think, like you said, who see it that way, who see this that, is yeah, an ethical exactly. dilemma. So I mm-hmm. think that's a big loss. Um, and I'm hopeful, actually, that there might be a coalition that can build within the Democratic Party of people who say, I want, I am pro-life in the sense that I want to take care of asylum seekers and I want to make sure that women have uh, access to uh, paid family leave and I want to make sure that we've got health care for all and I want to make sure that the unborn are protected, you know, like that sense of a a more holistic pro-life message. Mm -hmm. Fatherlessness is the other thing that I hear about a lot and not as a condemnation of, well, maybe I do hear it as a condemnation, and that I think is problematic. But I think that um, a lot of conservative Christians that I talk to will bring up fatherlessness within the com- black community in particular and feel as though the way in which to address that is through, again, individual responsibility, not through systems. Mm-hmm. I disagree with that mm-hmm. assessment, like kind of start to finish. Um, but I also think that these that fatherlessness is a concern within mm-hmm. the black community. Like it's not as though black preachers are like, oh yeah, doesn't matter if you've got a dad like that. So right. I think that's another place where there could be connection. And instead, there's this like disconnect, certainly in terms of what is causing this problem, and also in terms of how we might like think about solutions and healing in those areas. Mm. So. Yeah, I think, I I guess I agree with you. I think there are these real divides in how Christians see this. I'm with you as far as the racism piece just being a deal breaker. And I do see the ways in which President Trump specifically has refused to denounce white nationalism, some of much of the language and rhetoric he has used, as well as the some of the policies that he's enacted or tried to put into place. Um, and honestly, the Republican Party more broadly when it comes to voter suppression. I have been really, really concerned about racism as it has played out on like a policy level, not just on that personality level. Right, right. But I know that there are white Christians and I don't know, maybe there are black Christians, but there are certainly, I know there are white Christians who would really disagree with me on that. You know, there are, and I think a piece of it too is you and I have gone to school for issues like this. Mm-hmm. We've been educated in African-American study. We understand systems. We understand systemic racism. And there is just a plain denial of systemic racism, right? So there are Many conservative people who, and and even some people of color who who don't believe in systemic racism, mm-hmm. so that also influences their decision, right? So and their way of saying, okay, do we need to work on the system, or is this an individual responsibility? So i i think I think that makes a difference that understanding and belief in that. Well, and the other thing I was going to say is, I think. And I may have said this to you before, but um, I remember when I was little and I knew that my dad was voting for a Republican um, and my aunt, his sister, was voting for a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And I was really confused because I also knew that they shared so many values and they wanted so many of the same things. And I remember talking about it with my dad and or maybe with my mom, but one of my parents saying to me, oh, no, they do want the same things for our society. They just disagree about the best way for us to get there. Mm, mm-hmm. And I do think that that is how I've always seen the political realm is mm-hmm. basically disagreement about the best way to achieve the common good. Mm-hmm. In recent years, I've been less convinced that we actually agree about what the common good is. is. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one place where Christians, however, but even within Christians, like, what is what is the common good, right? Like, what does it mean for people to have the 
rights and freedoms that they deserve? What does it mean for them to be um, honored with the dignity as people who are created in the image of God? What does it look like for justice to be enacted within our society? What does it mean to, you know, feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for those who are in prison and for those who are seeking asylum, all of those types of things. But then I think you have on the both I think you have Christians who also see the far left of the Democratic Party, whether that's talking about socialism Mm -hmm. or whether it's talking about uh, transgender rights that seem to be really oppressive Mm -hmm. for people who've come from a more traditional family values system. Like, I think that's where you start getting these disconnects that truly it's like, I don't even know how you bridge them. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you get there. Mm. There is that disconnect. And I, I do think, you know, again, the way we view things is based on the lens of our experience, right? So when I was having this conversation recently with the pastor, I was saying that whole statement, God is sovereign. I believe that more than anything else in my life. Mm. I also think it's a blanket not to address certain things that are hurting people in the church. Yeah. And and you know we we hear about the in the Bible the power of lament. And I know you even wrote a piece on lamenting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the power of lament and why we need that. And I think part of the reason we're not hearing each other um is because we're reacting out of a hurt place for many people of color, for many people who um are marginalized. And and I heard a pastor say once we have to hear hurt before we heal hurt. So mm. if we're not acknowledging there are things going on within our community that are hurting each other, there are things that are being said or not said that are hurtful, we're not going to heal hurt and then we're not going to hear each other because it's, it's hard to hear when you haven't been healed or when you have trauma that has come from similar situations. Yes, and that's where I think... Again, I feel like I am in speaking from a position of social privilege when I say, as someone who voted for Biden, I want to listen and learn from people who my fellow Christians who voted for Trump, right? Like I'm not in a position of having been personally wounded by that. And so that's maybe that's just okay. That's my role is to be one of the people who's able, you know, to listen and learn, but I also just want to be careful in that because I really want to hold that lament on behalf of my fellow Christians who have been really, really wounded by not just the rhetoric, but the actions and attitudes within this whole process. I want to go back though to what you were saying about God's sovereignty, because Mm. that's also something I've thought about a lot And I've thought about the language of God being in control Mm. and how we tend to use that language as a way to say, oh, this is what was supposed to happen. Kind of whoever, whoever wins, whatever happens, it was supposed to because God is in control. And I wrote an essay actually for Breaking Ground about that this week because I feel like the idea of God as a sovereign is really different than God as like a mechanistic controlling deity, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like. I mean, even if you think about like the word sovereign really is king and there's something like relational involved as well as this sense of like, ultimately, yeah, what he promises and says will happen is what's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that there's this like mechanistic or manipulative working out of how that all is going to happen. And I think especially knowing if God is a, is love, not just is a God of love, but actually says like God is love, then that is really different than saying God is in control. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that what it means for us to trust that God is sovereign is that we do have these promises that will be somehow fulfilled someday. Mm -hmm. But uh, we also have this tension that leads to this invitation for us to be involved in that work of love. Mm. And I think that involves self-sacrifice. I think that involves peacemaking, even when it, you know, hurts, even when it hurts socially or hurts in our pocketbooks Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we can uh, really excuse suffering 
under the rhetoric of like God being in control and not pay attention to hurt and to the trauma that you were speaking of with this idea of like God being in control. And I think, I mean, this is one, so I'm going to, this essay I wrote, I said, it would be easy for me to say that God is in control of my situation and that God has ordained my life of relative ease. But if I were to comfort myself with that logic, it would lead to the less palatable thought that God also has ordained the lives of suffering and hardship many of my fellow Americans endure right now. Mm. In the midst of my genuine gratitude, I have been learning not to confuse the privileges of my life with God's blessings. Mm. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. just trying to recognize the complex interaction of the ways in which I have been advantaged by our society that make my life comfortable and might literally be unjust, you know, and it's like, and not saying, Oh, this came from God. It's just such a blessing when actually, what if it came from privilege? Um, privilege. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, I don't think privilege is always about injustice, nope. but sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. That's it's such a good point, Amy Julia, because I, you know, so as a person of color who has experienced different things, you know, who during this time, thought about my son as he's getting older Mm -hmm. and not being this cute little boy anymore. He's still so cute, but, you know, a big boy and Mm -hmm. viewed as a threat. There's some very real issues here for us. And one I've seen, there is just, again, we live in different realities. So when I had said this to a friend who voted for Trump, I said, and and let me tell you, I, I love many of my Christian friends who have voted for Trump. If they're my friend, I love them. You know, I might not understand them, but I love them. Our experience has been different and our our awareness is different of certain issues. When I said I was concerned about my son, she said to me, he's going to be fine because he's respectful. You know, if if, if something happened, he's respectful. And, and, you know, that's discounting every doctor, lawyer, person driving an Audi, Mercedes, well-dressed, respectful person being pulled over and treated unfairly. People, well, And it's also saying that you don't deserve fair treatment unless you're, you're respectful. respectful. Mm-hmm. And like, if you're like either just a, being a dumb 16-year-old, like that certainly does not in any way mean you deserve abuse or harm. Secondly, if you are scared... And so you respond in a way that seems disrespectful or if you're panicked or if there's a light in your face so you don't even know who you're talking. I mean, there's like there are just so many problems with even that, that logic. statement because mm-hmm. you're right. Sure. That doesn't actually protect him, first of all. Right. But second of all, who cares? Like who cares? Being respectful is. I mean, that's great. Of course. Great to be respectful. And the consequences. You do not deserve death. No, you don't. Yeah. The consequences for my son not being respectful in that situation are different than for your son. Yeah. We know this because I mean, we've seen it over and over again. And actually, honestly, like for my son to advocate for himself might not even be seen as disrespectful. Yeah. It in might the same not. way that it might for yours. You know, like it's like that is just there's just a lot there that is really problematic. So those those are the types of things that we've been told by our very yeah. well meaning Christian friends, which have right. which have created wounds in, in yeah. us, you know, as people of color. But I still think, like you said, you said, you know, I come from privilege, maybe because of privilege, I want to listen and learn for the people from the people who didn't vote like me. I feel the same way. I want to listen and learn from them. I want to try and understand. Mm-hmm. And and what I've seen for some is they really do feel like this is not an issue of racism. They don't feel right. like Trump is racist. And in that sense, I... I have more grace. You know, if you really don't feel, if in your understanding, if you don't feel this and you don't feel like this is harmful to me, you know, and then there's, there's, a, there's a different perception and understanding of the situation. And not for nothing, but no matter who wins, your life kind of goes on the same because you have that privilege, but I don't. And my kids don't. So, so my life could change. Right. So, and has over the past four years in that respect. So that's why I feel like it's so important to acknowledge that hurt. And, and for many of those people who are voting on abortion, they're not going to have abortions. You know, they're voting on whether or not gay people have rights. They're not gay. Right. 
But if I don't vote against what I believe is racism, that has direct implications for me and my family. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? It it affects me directly. So I feel like that's where there's a disconnect. And I don't know if you've heard this, but many people of color say we're we're voting for our lives right now. And that has also been minimized by white evangelicals who don't understand that or any any white person who doesn't understand that. And I just want to share this little story from yeah. Connecticut, which is technically a blue state, right? Um, <laughs> this is a doctor, an African-American woman who I went to med school with for a little while. And she had seen a patient in these last few days who said to her, or she posted this, just had a patient tell me that he's heading outside to plant his Trump flag. He said, you're a Negro, so I know you're voting for Biden. Then he told me, you're the best doctor I've ever had. So when the revolution starts tonight, if I see you out there, I won't shoot you. You're one of the good ones. Wow. And she wrote, no lie, that's verbatim. So this is a patient she's treated for years and has mm. had a great relationship, but she still has a good relationship with, it, with him. This is the first time this has come out because what we have experienced is, it's okay to say these things now. Right. It's We've given license for men to say things to women, to do things to women, to mm. say things towards people of color. And it's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, first of all, let's just name that that's awful. Mm. And, and I do think what's interesting to me. So there are two different things going on, maybe more than that, but one is this truly like white nationalist um, and white Christian nationalist. Those things again, get kind of layered on top of each other mm-hmm. that come out in something like, and I don't know if that guy was claiming to be a Christian or not, but still you see those layers come out in this like actual, violence and and of what we all most people would agree on as racism yeah i think um, any christian would say that's racism yeah right that's racist that's wrong and i don't and and christians who voted trump saying i would never do that i'd never feel that way right right and then you have this other so then you've got systemic racism right which is more like embedded in the system uh as far as generational poverty that has continued and stemmed from policies that actually aren't even in existence anymore but have not been rectified in any ways and you've got the social uh bias that comes out whether that's in policing or in hiring or in housing practices, you know, all of those types of things. Being denied a house in a neighborhood because you're a person of color. And that happens all the time still that people are not aware of. And that's the systemic pieces of this. Um, And just because that's a complex term, systemic racism, people don't believe it. I always say, if you just want a quick glimpse of it, watch the movie, Just Mercy. And you'll mm-hmm. see how systemic racism works. Okay, go on. I don't mean to interrupt you. Well, yeah. So sometimes when we are only focused on those very easy to identify examples of racism, like what your friend, the doctor friend experienced, mm-hmm. I think we can be like, well, I'm not like that. Yes. And not recognize this deeper and broader problem that many of us are very much complicit within. And that's where I wish that, honestly, I wish that both the Republican and the Democratic Party were proposing solutions that were different from each other. Like, And that's where, again, I go back to, I wish we could acknowledge the same problems mm-hmm. and the same goals, but have different solutions. Because, okay, what does a market-based individual rights, local and state rights solution to the problem of systemic racism look like it might be different than like sweeping government policies and programs and maybe there'd be some innovation and something that's really beautiful in that that would but we can't even agree that that systemic racism exists Mm. so we're certainly not going to be getting these kind of creative clash of ideas which is what i think government at its best would be and so i mean i've often in the past intentionally voted for both democrats and republicans because i've wanted a little bit of that tension between these ideas to be what is working itself out. Sure. Whereas now I feel like I don't even know how, I don't even know who is representing that part of that type of conservatism, right? That type Mm -hmm. of conservatism that's saying, I want to have, you know, kind of that libertarian piece slash. So deregulation market ideas. And yet, with this common good in mind that of course means the government is going to impose 
some restrictions and enact policies for the sake of the public. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, so just going back to that idea of understanding and, and lamenting, you know, I think, I think you can say God is sovereign and still acknowledge the hurts that people are going through. And I think there are things that people don't even recognize are hurting that are hurting, you know, that are harmful that are harmful. I think, yes, absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, there's, I think there's so much that black people, brown people have endured over the years, you know, because it's just not even worth it to bring up the fact that it's hurtful or harmful. Right. And, And then there's also just so much that I think white people are both oblivious to or have just been excused for um, over the years, whether that's small words or actions like, you know, can I pat your hair? Th- mm. Those types of things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that just kind of embedded sense of superiority or like that my, who I am is normal and who you are is other, all of those ways of being in the world. I think though, for me, I mean, and I think this is true for you too, I've what I come back to is, but within the church, we are meant to be different, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and not different in the sense that we're not influenced by our culture or that we don't disagree about things, but that sense of what is the church supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be healing. We're supposed to be reconciling and and we are supposed to be loving our enemies. Like mm-hmm. we're not just supposed to be, like sure, we're supposed to be loving God and loving one another, but oh my gosh, we're all we're supposed to be loving our enemies, not just tolerating them, not just but you know, and I don't I'm again not even sure I know what that looks like, but I'm certain that that is not something that we are actively pursuing most of the time. Mm-hmm. So this this is a question, how do we heal a church divided? now. Right. You know, and how how do we can we get past this? Because we've also seen and experienced things from each other. We've seen these big areas where we don't understand each other. And I, I just wanna I wanna bring up one more thing because oftentimes and I have been I'd say accused of this too, bringing up things that people view as creating division. And in my mind it's creating mm. awareness for people Mm -hmm. who may be experiencing something that no one is putting words to and they Mm. need to hear it. But because it is so polar, what, and, and obviously like I voted for Biden, but because it's so polarized, right? This whole race, the media also is polarized things. So we don't even know what information is accurate half the time. Right. So that's made it worse. Right. People look at it as not speaking truth. It's creating division and especially if they don't share the same viewpoint, it's creating division. And then when it gets dangerous is when, okay, then how are you a Christian, right? And that's, I feel like that's a question that has been circulating through people's minds as they've been looking at the way that people vote. And and I, I want to say that's never been an issue for me. I don't question people's Christianity. I don't question their faith. I am just trying to understand why they don't understand <laughs> what I understand. And and they're probably saying the same thing about me, right? right? Like, why are you, why yeah. you, why are you um, expressing this, right? So can you speak about that a little bit more? I mean, what comes to mind to me is the idea that some of the things that we do have as Christians is a commitment to the word of God And I wonder about, in terms of that sense of like healing a divided church. So first, okay, sorry, backing up a minute. Mm -hmm. I read a book called Reconciling All Things. um, Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. It's I think it's Chris Rice and Emmanuel Katangole. Anyway, um, came out of the Duke Center for Reconciliation. And one of the things they say is that we want reconciliation work to be quick, global, and innocent, like clean, kind of, you know, and what it is in actuality is slow, messy, and local. Mm. So it happens on the local level. Mm -hmm. It takes a really long time and it's going to be messy along the way. That, so I think that would be my framework for this. But within that, I do think that approaching the word of God together 
is one way to begin to have these conversations. And what has happened a lot, especially at least in my experience, which is in predominantly white um, and both evangelical and mainline churches, in reading the Bible, we tend to do it as this like privatized faith application experience. Mm -hmm. So how can I, you know, pray for my friends and family for, you know, anything from a parking spot to a new house, to a new job, God's will for (laughs) my life. Like all of which I think we can do and can learn from. prayed for the parking spot, but. Uh, Me too. Like I'm all, I'm all (laughs) all about it. Right. But one of the things that I, in recent years, I lead a Bible study every week and I've even told them this is that I'm really challenging myself as I read the Bible personally, but especially in this group context to say, How does this apply, not just to me personally, but on a social and communal level? So one of the things that happened in our Bible study, which is usually all white people, there are like a couple people of color who are there occasionally, but let's call it an all white Bible study for now, is that when we look, we kind of, when we look at the passages, we revert to this privatized, like individual way of looking at it. And we were looking at a passage that was talking about money and about being greedy. And one of the women in the study said, well, what if we think about this, not just in terms of like my own personal bank account, but the way we think about paying taxes, Mm -hmm. or the way we think about sharing resources as a society, and not just as an individual, whether or not I'm going to like give more generously to charity this year, What if I thought about it in terms of tax policy? So that was an example of something where what I think, so first thing would be like for Christians, we can pray together. We can come to the word together. We can obviously like fellowship and break bread together. Like there's some spiritual practices that we have that we don't share with the wider culture that I think are places for connection Mm -hmm. um, in which healing can happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if it stays within this framework of a privatized and individualized faith, I don't think that will happen. Mm. And so we have to push ourselves to actually in approaching scripture together or praying together or serving a community together to actually do that in some of those places that, again, are slow and messy and local Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in their application. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that helps at all, but that's what I have spent a lot of time thinking about is just like how this work can happen. I I do think like through, especially for Christians, through the shared experience of the word of God, but it still has to be in like connecting the personal and the social Mm -hmm. and not just one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's. I think it's going to be hard after this. And I think there are going to be some people of color, and I know many, who feel like we can, we can love Jesus together, but that doesn't mean we're going to be in a relationship together. Yeah. You know, and there, there may, I think we have to think about the co- concept of forgiveness, which is also hard when you're constantly being hurt by the same things if someone fails to acknowledge that you know, Mm -hmm. um, their action. So I think forgiveness has a role in this. And on the flip side, Mm -hmm. so like if you're a person of color, forgiveness, if Mm -hmm. you're a white person, I guess it's, I don't know if I, it's both humility and repentance, Mm. right? Cultural humility as well. Yeah. I haven't walked in your shoes, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is true for you. Yeah. Right. I certainly feel like there is just, yeah, a a place for on the white side of things, a lot more humility and repentance and recognizing that biblically, certainly we are called to repent for our own sins Mm -hmm. and transgressions, but we also are able to stand as like a representative, both of like our tribe, as well as the generations, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, there is a way in which we can, um, without pretending to like, I I did not do this thing that my ancestors did, Mm -hmm. but I am a part of that. And I can represent that. And there's a way for healing, I think, to happen Mm -hmm. when it's not just, I mean, obviously forgiveness is a part of healing, but repentance is a big part of healing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think, I think we have to go to God with that and be open to conviction 
if if we I think we can have a conversation if we approach it with humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's hard to do. You have to check your heart. Um, am I approaching this with humility? Am I open? to hearing another perspective other than my own. And where I feel like where that becomes tricky is people of color listening to white people invalidating our experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that becomes difficult. And we talked about this. At what point does not saying anything for the sake of unity become complicit in the issue, in the problem? Right, because totally. that's what I was talking about. You know, I was posting these things, and it was really from a clinical psychological perspective, but it, it could also be viewed as name calling, right? Which is mm. definitely not godly, right? right? Something, right. That, right? So, but we can look at those things and say, okay, well, you're you're creating division, but someone else can say, no, you know, I'm actually speaking out about what I believe to be wrong. And, I know, and, and that's true. where like the prophetic tradition, I really struggle with this because I feel like I stay silent a lot on a lot of these political issues because I'm so much trying to be a bridge builder. Mm-hmm. And yet I also know that I just have been raised in this kind of culture of politeness where you really do go along with the status quo. Like that is also a part of my privilege. And I want, I look back at the prophets who throughout including Jesus, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, they really did speak out, especially against sanctimonious religious power Mm. (laughs) and and people who thought that they were worshiping God when they actually were worshiping themselves, you know, and, and I, I don't, I think it's really important at least to name the fact that that's a great temptation. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and just something that we find ourselves doing, you know, like it's, it's really easy to not be able to even see ourselves when it comes to some of these issues. And so oftentimes I think I hide behind the idea of peace. And I think, I think it was Martin Luther King and I'm sure other people have too, who talked about that sense of like active peacemaking is like a passive peace is perpetuating injustice. Mm. Whereas active peacemaking uh, in the name of Jesus is going to be controversial, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, people aren't yeah. going to like to hear it, you know, but you have to call it out on some level. And I think that's where the the idea of discernment comes in, in, in praying for discernment. When we have something to say, when we're calling out truth, how do I say this, you know, to really ask God to give you that discernment? And one thing and and you know I don't always I I sometimes forget to ask these questions of myself, but I'm I'm trying to remember it in the context of my marriage. This is where I I learned this principle first. Mm. And my husband, who's probably listening, is like, "Oh, it's like forty percent of the time where you pay attention to this." But <laughs> is it kind? Is it helpful? Is it true? Mm-hmm. You know, and does it meet those three criterias? Can I say it now? Sometimes it's not very kind, but not because I'm not intending it to be kind, but it's, it's ugly stuff that we're talking about, right? you know, and because you're going to have an emotional reaction to it, you may not feel like it's kind, but it's true. And is the intent to help. And I think, I think that's where sometimes those lines get blurred, but I, I do try to go back to that place because I am not, and obviously, you know, we do podcasts, you and I, we're not mm-hmm. silent. I mean, even though there's, right. there are times where you maybe have the discernment to be silent, and I think there's a place for that. And I've learned there are certain situations, don't bother bringing this up because it's it really right. is only going to cause division and it's not going to be helpful. People aren't going to change their perspective because of it, right. you know, so... But we're not we're not the kind to be silent. We do speak up. We believe in the radical Jesus that that changed our society, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so I think that is a tricky a tricky place. But I I do think it if we take a pause and think about what we're going to say, that that could make all the difference in expressing it in a way where it can be received, or at least you can walk away from it peacefully. Well, and I was also I was talking with Peter about this. Uh, Peter's my husband for your listeners and. I said, you know, I think I was talking about compassion, like mm. both sides having compassion. And he's like, I'm not even sure we need compassion. We just need curiosity. Like, yes. can you just yes. get curious mm-hmm. about 
other people. And if you, especially again, if we're thinking about Christians, if we can have some basic assumptions to your point about like, I believe that you want to follow Jesus. So if we can believe that about each other, then can we get curious in terms of just asking questions about, so why is it that you think this, Mm -hmm. vote this way, Mm -hmm. play this out in this regard? Do you consider this a problem, you know, like, and, and hopefully not in a way that like leads to greater hostility, because obviously questions can go in that direction. But I just thought that was an interesting, like, he's like, I'm not even sure we need compassion. Like, we just need curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not even, we're not even asking those questions. And there's a humility, I think, again, in curiosity, in that mm-hmm. sense of like, I know that I've got something to learn here. How can I do that? I think that's a great way to put it, just learning, um, having a curiosity, like a student almost. I want to be able to understand this and study it and hear it and learn it. And then you make your decisions once you've you've heard it out. I think it's also important to know what is that person's heart? Where are they coming from? Because there are definitely some relationships, I would say, that are going to end because of this, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had people of color have white... Um, even well, I'm saying evangelicals, but Christians or people of faith. Let's just say it that way, because this, yeah. this transcends the evangelical church on some level as well. Um, come to them and say, you know, I know you're voting for Biden because you know you kind of have to. And mm-hmm. my friend said, well, what what do you mean? Well, he's racist or he's kind of racist. But my my stocks have never done better. So. Trump's my guy. Now, in that case, I I don't think that's a healthy relationship for that person of color to be in because they clearly right. have made their choice, right? And that, to me, is not reflected in what we profess as Christians, that one. Right, and to say, it's so interesting because I think, yes, anytime we're voting as Christians out of personal economic self-interest. As Christians, and that's the key word there. I think there should be like a big red flag. Mm -hmm. That said, I do think that if you are someone who believes that a, you know, free market system is going to allow for more wage growth and for more people to have jobs and for X, Y, and Z, as far as the economy, like a better public good, then that's a different economic reason that's on behalf of other people. Mm. You know, so I think it can, you're absolutely right. Like if it's like, Hey, my bank account's doing better. I think there's all sorts of reasons for Christians to vote against their personal self-interest when mm-hmm. it comes to the economy, mm-hmm. because certainly like storing up for myself treasures here on earth is not the goal. No, no, you know, and it's, it's a subtlety. It's a subtlety, and and it gets very interwoven in some of these issues. Actually, I um, I know one of the ways that I've dealt with this, and, and we'll wrap this up soon. But one of the ways I've dealt with this is to, and now because we're coming to a conclusion, I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> I know all these people who I see differently because of the election. But you know, I have a long history with this one. I have a long mm. history with that one. That one's been really good to me in the past. That one has supported me in many ways. We've shared experiences. There are things that I can let go of that have come out of this election because I know where that person's heart is. Mm. And then there are other relationships where, and not to say that their words have not hurt me or their ignorance has not hurt me and their unwillingness to understand my perspective, which is different. That mm-hmm. has, it, they've all still hurt me. Mm-hmm. But because I know it's not intentional, I can let it go. Now, some people are not in that space. You know, they've had a different level of trauma because of these issues and they need to heal as well. And there's some relationships that I, I don't think I'll invest much time in any longer right. because of what I've seen. And I think that's okay too. Yeah. I don't want to get caught up in bitterness anger. I don't think those things are of God. So that's a, that's a thing I have to work out between me and right. God. You know, I need to release that. I, I do need to work on forgiveness. And I do think there's a time for forgiveness, but sometimes you have to heal before you get there. And even with forgiveness, I think that doesn't mean you need to restore the relationship. The relationship. Absolutely. If that continues to be a harmful relationship, mm-hmm. no, you don't. No, you forgive, shake the dust and move on, you know? Right. I mean, truly. Yeah. And that's where I think that um, the whole idea of like having safe spaces, Mm -hmm. you know, for people to be able to share their experiences of 
hurt and also to be able to just like grow and heal Mm -hmm. is really important. I just wish that we knew better within the church how to be that for one another across racial, ethnic, socioeconomic lines better than we do. Mm -hmm. So we, I mean, we don't have the answers to these questions because they're, they're broad and they're deep and they're complex. And there's so many different elements that are interwoven to create this situation but I think it's just important that we talk about it as we're talking about it. We work it out um, sometimes with people who are like us and who think like us to understand it better, sometimes in a safe space to uh, with someone who you trust, uh, but also to read and to to look for knowledge about these things that you you might not agree with, but maybe you don't agree with because you don't have enough information, you know, that could be a piece of it as mm-hmm. well, right? And that's not to, to put a blanket statement over everybody doesn't agree with something, you don't have enough information, but there are areas where that has proven true during this time. Yeah, and I think that sense of uh, we, none of us are going to change much when it comes to national politics, Mm-mm. but we do have a lot of influence in our local communities, mm. in our churches, in our towns, in our schools. And that uh, word of just like, yeah, reconciliation, the work of healing is going to take time and it's going to be messy, but we all can be a part of that on a local level. And so I think for any of us who want to be, you know, Republican or Democrat, like, mm-hmm. or independent or something in between, like, we all can be a part of that. And I think as Christians, we are called to be reconcilers, we're called to be peacemakers. And so to ask where and how can I do my small part in that? Mm. And where is God working already in that area is really important for all of us. I think so. A couple just quick thoughts. I think for me, it's helpful when I'm feeling really divided from another person of faith to think about mm-hmm. where is our common ground? You know, I've, right. I've had to say to people, okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree about all this and just agree that we both love Jesus and we love worshiping Jesus and and that may be all we're agreeing on right now, you know, but, but let's, let's share that piece of it together. And that's harder to do than in some situations. But I will say this, I I listened to a pastor named Albert Tate. Do you know Albert Tate? Mm -mm, No. He's so fantastic. Mm. Definitely check him out. And, and he was saying, okay, so these are the issues. These are the deciding factors you have voted on, on both sides we as Christians need to think about, so are we only convicted about these issues once in four years? Mm-hmm. If this is the issue deciding your vote, what are you doing the rest of all of that time between yeah. those once in four years to support that? So if, if so, if abortion's your issue, how are you getting involved to mentor and help young mothers to step into that world of yeah, education? Yeah. That is your conviction. Or is this just a conviction once in four years and then you don't think about it at all? And on the yeah. other side, if immigration is your issue, if you're if you're passionate about uplifting the rights of the poor, um, how are you getting involved in those communities? What are you giving back? What are you doing? Or is yep. this just a once in four year conviction? And that convicted me. You know, yeah, no, that's a great word because I think that um, again, you've got on both the liberal progressive side. And on the conservative side, I think of some of my conservative friends who have stayed, for example, in a local challenging public school situation while their liberal progressive friends have gone to private school, right? Like mm. where it's like, wait a second, you're, you would critique me for X, Y, and Z of my values, you know, what I, how I would vote. And yet I am really trying to make our local school work. So I think there can be for all of us, and of course, none of us are going to live this out perfectly, but for all of us, ways in which we really need to think about, but what can I do? Mm. Um, and how can I be involved without thinking I'm called to like save the world or something. Yes, because and the other thing is regardless of how you voted, all of us believe in those issues. We believe in mentoring young mothers. We believe in the value of human life. Mm-hmm. You know? So so we can all agree on on getting involved in those issues at times where we're just not voting on them. You know? So and I think that that may be a unifying factor as well. Right. And wouldn't that be a really wonderful thing, actually, to find 
what, you know, who are the people who, for whatever reason, God has just placed on their hearts similar issues, even if they come from different political positions to be able to be working together mm. throughout, you know, in that local context throughout the, the years uh, mm-hmm. to make a difference. Mm. Amy, Julia, thank you once again. And I just have Thanks. to say, every time I record a podcast with you, I, I write down the words that you say that I don't understand. I have to go look them up. Oh, so I, I feel much smarter after I speak to you always. <laughs> I don't believe that. Totally. But thank you for having me. It's really, really great to be able to talk some of this through. Well, I love you, my friend. Well, that's a lot to digest and process. And thank you for hanging in there and listening. And one more thing I just want to say as I'm thinking through all of these different factors and facets of this very complex situation, complex relationships, be praying for unity. And I think that's our strength in the church. We identify that there is an enemy who is so happy that so many of us are not getting along right now and not understanding each other. So this is a spiritual battle, especially when we're looking at a church divided. We need to identify who the real enemy is. Oftentimes it is not that person sitting across the row from you. And we need to pray for unity. We need to pray that God makes inroads in these relationships and opens our ears and our hearts to understand each other. And when we don't understand, we're still able to love because we have the Holy Spirit. And it may necessitate, as Amy Julia said, not necessarily staying in the relationship, but we can still love from the position that we're in. I believe that there's a way to do that, but I also believe that in some of these situations, without God, it's not going to be possible because that's how deep and wide and hard the situation and the wounds, the wounds are deep as well. So do not give up hope. Do not grow weary of doing good. I know at the right time we will see healing. So be well, live full, hang in there, and I will be back again soon. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a second, go on the Apple Podcast app and rate this podcast. I want to know what you liked and what you didn't like and what you want more of. And connect with me. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media at Nero Feliciano, the incidental therapist on Facebook and Nero Feliciano on Instagram. And you can also connect with me through my website, Nero Feliciano. So until the next time, have a great day. Be well and live full.